0: Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Lon Samantha Chang, author of the novel The Family Chow.
1: My practice, such as it is, is in a stage where I generally, a stage I hate where I'm now fishing around again for a big project. And that can take very little time and it can take... Years and I'm it's just the worst stage for me.
0: We'll be back with Lan Samantha Chang after these essential words. First I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash First Draft Writers. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free But it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash first draft writers. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Lan Samantha Chang, author of three novels, including All is Forgotten, Nothing is Lost, Inheritance, and The Family Chow. Her short story collection is called Hunger. Her work has appeared in the Atlantic Monthly, Plowshares, and the Best American Short Stories. Chang is the director of the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop. Her new novel, The Family Chow, tells the story of a Chinese immigrant family living in Haven, Wisconsin, and running a restaurant called The Fine Chow, which serves Americanized Chinese fare. The patriarch of the family, Leo Chow, is brash and bold and presumed murdered near the beginning of the novel. His wife has recently left him to live in a Buddhist community. The Chow's three grown sons are reckoning with the events that not only led to their father's death, but led to the fractured relationships they have with one another and with their community. At the center is Dago, who felt he was destined to inherit the restaurant, Ming, who was financially successful but personally tortured, and James, a lost college student who has recently returned home, we began the discussion with Lan Samantha Chang talking about the origin of the story in the Family Chow.
1: That is such an interesting question. I've been wondering about it myself because of course I'm starting to think about trying to write a new project and that's the hardest part of writing for me. So I went back to look and see what got me going into this project. You know once you are into writing a novel, you're so deep in that you can't even remember how you started, or at least that's how I feel about it. And I was really, I could remember one moment very clearly. And it was when I discovered the present tense. And it wasn't just a moment, it was a summer when I was working on sort of just an attempt at any kind of thing, you know, to start something new. And it was in 2006, actually. And I was... Living in Iowa City, I realized that I was really enjoying working on this sort of a, who knows what it was passage that went up to a hundred pages, and it was about a family. There were three children, uh, and there was a tyrannical patriarch in an unhappy marriage to his wife of many years. And I remember thinking, "Wow, I really love writing in the present tense, and this is bad because I have told." so many students that it's a bad idea and I need to just shut up in the future and let people do what they want. I mean, the entire process of writing this novel has really been about sort of revamping the way I think about teaching in a lot of ways. Um, So I, I had always told people that present tense was essentially false that it's impossible for something to be both written and unfolding simultaneously. And I think that's true. But for some reason, it was just such a pleasure to write. And at that point, one of my students sent me an essay on the present tense. It basically, it made me think, okay, I'll I'll just chill out on the present tense. And then I put it aside for years why did i put it aside is that it had no story in it it was just a bunch of words it was it was a bunch of voices people talking there was a lot of internal monologue a lot of sort of present tense rumination and it was funnier than what i usually write had written before anyway put it aside started you know really digging into my job at iowa it was very time consuming and years went by. Um, I went through a really dry spell with my writing. I think the worst one I've ever had. And for maybe four years, I couldn't get dug into a project, which was hell for me. Um, And I was looking through my journals, trying to see how I got started. And that's when I found the second place where I really got into the book. I was having a meeting again with the student and he was telling me, that he liked to to sort of base all of his projects on existing projects. So this is a very, um, very smart, very erudite graduate student. And I remember thinking, oh, that's so interesting. And I wrote about it in my journal. So the thing that one would need to know is that around the time I started writing the present tense stuff in like 2005, I had another, this is so crazy because you know, it's it, when people ask me, how did your writing and teaching intertwine? This is a real example. I had another student who was a Russian literature major. I was teaching undergrads at Harvard, and he really loved The Brothers Karamazov, and I decided to read it because I'd never read it. And I became completely obsessed with it. I thought, what if the narrative frame for this was the Dostoevsky novel? And this thought, stopped me in my tracks for another couple of years. I'm embarrassed to say how slow my process is. But first of all, it was an incredibly intimidating thought because The Brothers Karamazov is a truly great work of literature. It's very deep and wide ranging. The characters are fascinating. They're also funny. The tone of the novel is really all over the place. It's divergent and also deep and, You know, it's a staggering work of genius and there's something really presumptuous about using it as a model for anything. But I was completely obsessed with it. And I really knew it through and through at that point. And so I reread it and took notes on it and thought about it. And at that point, I also read an essay on homages by Margot Lucy, who's, a former teacher of mine and now a colleague and someone I truly admire. Margot wrote an essay um, in which she described writing her book, The Flight of Gemma Harding, which is based on Jane Eyre. And she said that she had to put Jane Eyre aside while she was working on it for years. She just couldn't read the book. And that that's when I understood what I had to do to proceed. I had to stop reading The Brothers Karamazov. And at that point, I was then able to, it was 2014, I was able to really dig into it. And so really, I started to actually write it, like the very first scene happened um, in the summer of 2014. It took me a long time. I mean, from the beginning until finishing 15 years.
0: So you said so much there. There's like a gold mine of things to to do offshoots of, but I think where I want to start is like big picture, this interplay between your journal and writing, fiction and essays and teaching. It's like this really complicated web. And mm-hmm. do you think differently about your practice now? Like are you paying attention to different things? No, after writing this book and seeing all the synergies, I'm wondering if you're paying attention in a different way.
1: I think I definitely am paying attention in a different way. But one thing to for, that I have to say is that my practice, such as it is, is in a stage where I generally, the, a stage I hate, where I'm now fishing around again for a big project. And that can take very little time, and it can take years, and i am it's just the worst stage for me. So, one thing I noticed that had changed about my practice is that when I started a project last about a year ago, in January of 2021, I started a project and I thought, you are going to write something else this year if it kills you because otherwise you'll lose your mind because I really don't like not writing. So I wrote 200 pages. I wrote an entire arc of another project. Um, It's totally not right. Like there are passages that I like, but there's something really off about it. And one of the things I realized that was problematic to me is that the tone in The Family Chow is so different from the tone in anything else I've written that I have a choice with my new work. I can continue to write work in the tone of the family chow or or something that's an offshoot of it, or I can return to the tone that I had before. But there's very little overlap between them. Um, there's an overlap of subject matter writing about Chinese and American characters, but the tone is entirely different. And so I need to think about it the tone of the family Chow is influenced by Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, which is different from a lot of his other novels. It's more raucous in a way. This book is more raucous than anything I've written. The book that I returned to is something that had passages I liked, but I could tell that there was something missing from it that needed to be informed by what I'd just gone through with this book, but that I need to back off from it before I can see what it is. So yeah, very much um, a change. And also this whole process of going back and looking through my journals about how I wrote The Family Chow, because people are asking me about it, made me realize how intertwined my writing and teaching have become and how much teaching has been a huge pleasure and advantage for me as a writer. There are disadvantages to teaching and the, the biggest disadvantage is that it takes up time where you bend your attention toward other people's work. But in doing that, you can learn a lot about writing in general in your own work. And if you are working with the students that I have who are really engaged and absorbed in reading and writing what is being published now, as well as things that have been published long ago, you can see a fresh view um, on where literature is today, I was thinking, uh, a critic said that the length of a literary generation is 15 years. And so I've been through two literary generations since I published my first book. And I feel like teaching has helped me grow along with American fiction by sort of constantly spading up the soil, turning it over, turning it over. That's what teaching is like for me.
0: I'm not really sure if you can answer this, but I want to try to ask is like, where do you think tone comes from?
1: Such an interesting question.
0: This is this is
1: so interesting because when I'm teaching about novels, I always tell my students that one of the hardest things is to find the voice. And at one point, um, Yi Yun Lee, who a writer I really admire came to teach uh, a small class, a short class at our program for a few weeks, and it was about Early, you know, the early stages of novels. It was about openings, and um, she came out of the class and said to me, "We were having lunch. She said, what is voice? Like they were all seeing this, and I don't think it's a technical term. It consists of tone and, you know, a number of things: diction, um, tense, degree, you know, degree of lyricism, and it, just a number of a number of things. But the definition of tone." is the narrator's attitude toward the material. That's, that's the standard definition. So at least as far as I was taught. So how does this narrator see these characters? How does this narrator see this dilemma, this place, this society? And I think that that has flipped, um, not flipped, uh, but it but it has drastically moved around in this book compared to my earlier works.
0: I have a thought about it if you want to hear it. Yeah, I do. So I have this soundboard in front of me, you know, with all of these volumes that I can put up or down and they're each they're labeled like one, two, three, four, whatever. And I kind of think a voice as tone is like each one of these volume meters is almost like a like a Likert scale. And one is like SAS, right? So I can sure. turn up the sass or down the sure. sass or up the compassion or down the compassion and that you're always modulating it. and that
1: Absolutely. That is such a good c- comparison.
0: And that what you're saying about the tone of the family chow and as you move forward to have another tone is per- perhaps you are trying to find the chemi- the chemistry of your mind and how you want to modulate all of these buttons, because there is something I think that has to do with tone that has to do with the time and where you are in your life. Right. So does that make sense?
1: It makes total sense. Yeah. The chemistry of your mind and it is completely affected by where you are in your life. I was unable to write, in the third person for a long time in a way that satisfied me and then I was unable to write in the first person, for example. When I was younger, a lot of my writing was in the first person because it was very close to the feelings and experiences I'd had, although none of it actually happened. And then I believe I started this job where I was required to write these memos to people at the time. And they were always um, sort of authoritative memos describing something outside of myself, which was the program, which has a life of its own. And I feel like in many ways, I simply guide the program, Um, but I have to describe the program to people who aren't in it. And as a result, um, I began to feel comfortable with a voice I'd never tried before. And I was able to write, get this, a novel from the point of view of a white man, (laughs) You know, people had problems with that novel in, not that many, but some people had problems with the novel just because it was it was about, it started it with the scene, you know, with the whole section about students in an MFA program and people just didn't want to read about that. But nobody complained about the white man. Everyone felt it was persuasive, <laughs> which I find really hilarious. I never could have done that as a young writer. So now that I'm a late middle-aged writer, I like to think, (laughs) I feel like I have an entirely different uh, take on youth for one thing, and then early middle age also. And then also I think what's impending, I feel like I'm in a completely different place. I have a little more distance on some of it. And so I think the work can be a little funnier. I've always loved reading funny work, and I've always admired um, certain kinds of work, but I wouldn't allow myself to dip into those tones until more recently. So for example, the work of Philip Roth, who I know is a controversial figure for a number of reasons, and I certainly respect um, any opinion that people have about him, but I grew up um, seeing his his generation of post-war, Jewish writers as, um, you know, inspirations for myself as an immigrant writer. And uh, the, my favorite part of Goodbye Columbus, his first novella, for example, it, I mean, really my favorite parts are sort of not the lyrical parts or the, you know, deftly described scenes of action. It's the dialogue, it's the humorous conversations that Neil has with his aunt Gladys, Um, Who's always trying to feed him and take care of him and he's trying to go off and become like somebody more sort of important than she is on some level, like he wants to join American society, she wants to take care of him and um, I love those scenes.
0: Generally, the family chow is about this um, domineering father who came to America from China, started this restaurant in this small town called Haven, Wisconsin, and has three boys. And each boy has kind of had a different experience of his parents and of America because they are, they are aged, they're separated by age. And so like the first son got much more Chinese and got more of the expectations of the firstborn and the second one was a little bit more reserved and then the third one is probably someone you might see as the most quote American and as they're. It's really revolving around their life around the restaurant and the power dynamics within the family. The oldest son had given up his career in New York as a musician to come back and work for the family restaurant. And after six years, he really wants a part of it. Um, But the dad is very cold and is like, nope, this is mine. And there's this sense that he's hoarding money. Um, and not going to share it with his family. At the same time, his wife has recently left him and joined like a Buddhist nunnery and is renouncing everything. And yeah. the youngest son is on his way home for Christmas, ends up helping someone who died in a train station and takes his bag home to return to his family, who is was also um, a Chinese man, and never like gets around to it. And so there's this mystery of the bag and... Just the, the chaos of this family, which I love because chow, when you add an S, is the word chaos. And um the, the, the play for power dynamics. And it ends up being a trial about the father's death who dies an untimely death in the restaurant. And the oldest son is on trial for that. So it's really, though, also about questions of what do we inherit from our family what do we create um there's issues of race there's issues of like how do you how do you go through the world feeling all this passion and releasing it and once you released it is it really gone um and just the expectations and ambitions that we have of of one another so I guess I'm I'm kind of wondering like how did you start like yes you you were thinking a lot about the brothers Karamazov How did you start to create the character of each of these children? Because they're very different. And if we could go through each son a little bit, if you want.
1: I actually did write character sketches for each of the brothers and the parents, but especially the brothers and... The character sketches didn't take me very long. They they were like maybe one day each. And they gave me enough to go on. And at that point, I just started writing. I did not write in order. So after I envisioned the characters, I would envision them in a scene, for example, that I knew needed to happen and just try to write the scene. I also wrote riffs and things that didn't know where they would go. At one point, the father uses the word, uses a bunch of expressions that have the word dog in them, English expressions. Like that was a riff I wrote fairly early on in 2014, um, and then just figured out a place to put it much later. The characters began, and this is gonna sound really cheesy and my apologies, but they began to sort of move and speak on their own very early on, And I just let them go at it. Dago was very much the way he is. One of the early drafts of this, which contains, well, contains an email of his to James that I ultimately cut. I actually gave a reading. I gave many readings from parts of this book that got cut because the whole time I was writing the book, I was teaching at conferences and at residencies where I was required to read something from a work in progress. And so I would just read whatever I was working on at the time. But this long email of Dago's in which he just sort of rants and rants about how angry he is at his father, I I later cut because it seemed redundant. I mean, the fact is, uh, he is a redundant guy. He was obsessed with how he'd been sort of wronged by his father. And so I had to go through and cut you know, and, and place things uh, differently.
0: I think what's interesting too, is that as a fiction writer, you have to find different ways to have revelation, to uh, reveal what's going on in character. So you can do it through their physicality, like maybe Dago, the oldest, gained a lot of weight, so that told you about yeah. something sometimes the, it, it was in conversations between the brothers and sometimes you chose forms like to talk about the trial through a blog through someone else's point of view so i'm yeah. i'm wondering about them uh, your choices about these like is it pure instinct when you know
1: no i mean i can talk about them bit by bit but the point of view is something that evolved over time. So the Brothers Kermatsov has a really interesting point of view. And it's a point of view that I've attempted in various points and studied a lot when I was probably in my thirties. I call it omniscient first, where there's a first person character who basically knows everything and relays all of it to the reader in a kind of more chatty tone of voice, like a more first person tone of voice that can also become quite different from chatty at times. You know, it's sort of moving in and out of that formal narration and then a more intimate narration. And I was fascinated by the first-person omniscient, which back in the 90s there were a lot of novels written in which a first-person narrator was talking about family history and described things they hadn't seen. But it goes way before that. For example, in The Great Gatsby, Nick Carraway very, I think, sort of brilliantly, gradually becomes more third person. Like by chapter eight of The Great Gatsby, he's describing things he's never seen and relating Gatsby's death, even though he wasn't there. So, but but in The Brothers Karamazov, which obviously was written before The Great Gatsby, the first person narrator is an anonymous member of the community, the town in which the Karamazov family lives. And he rarely refers to himself The moment I found fascinating happens in the trial, he says that he was at the trial. And he also says things like, I might get this wrong. I might not have everything written down exactly as it happened. I might not even be putting everything in the order in which it happened, which I thought was really brilliant because it allows you to reconstruct the trial. And I thought, what this book, my book, totally apart from that book, What my book turned out to be about, and what I thought um, was fascinating about the community in which these characters live, is that the wider community is primarily white. The inner community is Chinese American. Um, You know, the, the major characters, most of the major characters are Chinese American, but they live in a community that's entirely white. And so I created a novel in which the second half describes a lot about how the family and community are seen from outside of themselves. And this is one way in which the book is similar to the Brothers Karamazov, if that makes sense. Like I consciously thought about that, consciously thought about that first person narrator in the community observing the trial. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if I could um, create an observer of this trial and one reason I needed to do that had to do with the way I wrote the trial, um, which is that I actually read an entire 1400 page transcript of a murder trial that my, that it's public knowledge, um, but I was, I was um, able to read the whole things uh, at one point. One of the reasons the book took such a long time. Um, and when I first started drafting the trial um, it read very much like a transcript of a trial. I had to break it down and cut it up and put it into different order. And it finally became clear to me that I needed someone to observe the trial who was not one of the characters who was actually in the trial. And so I built in a character who could do that. And she does it as a blog for her journalism assignment, which she she's enrolled in journalism because she wants to be a writer, even though her parents want her to major in data analytics.
0: I'm wondering about your experience because there is so much ritual, so much like deep culture from everything from Winnie to joining this Buddhist monastery and having this this fortune telling happen to maybe some of the superstitions that exist in the book or the struggles And there's so much food oh my god the food is so like sensual and i was so hungry when i was reading this how much of that is is maybe from your own experiences
1: my grandmother was a devout buddhist my mother's mother and her father was a devout buddhist and so as a child i saw peeps of the buddhist monastery where she would sometimes go and stay for long periods of time. And I actually had my fortune to hold by the head. And he said some interesting things about me and my sister that, by the way, have all turned out to be true. Really fascinating. The nuns in my novel are of a different sort. I think my grandmother was like a very sort of by the book Buddhist, but I've gone into communities in New York City where they're more like they're more like community centers than they are serious, you know, seriously um, studying the sutras, etc. This is meant to be more like that. It's just the the community. There's a she doesn't even call herself. I mean, she calls herself the abbess. That's the um, that's her actual title, the head of this community. And she basically came to the Midwest and started the community. Who knows why? But it's a sanctuary for women and. Some of the women in the community have come there uh, because they want to get away from something, and one of those people is Winnie. She wants to discover tranquility. I, I find her fascinating. She reminds me in some ways of my grandmother. There's a streak in my family of what I would call extravagance. We all have it in some way. but My grandmother had it and she is the character who during wartime wanted to make soup with three different kinds of meat which is obscene she i think reacted against this extravagance by developing a very serious interest in buddhism a practice and it was not it's not zen buddhism it's amida buddhism it's a different tone but i i remember her as a child sort of Seeking to uh, practice a, a kind of calm and a a lack of desire, you know, trying to just be, I think, against some of her nature. And that is similar to Winnie, I think. I think that's probably one of the most um, true-to-life parts of the book.
0: Did you have a rich culinary world in your life growing up?
1: Well, my parents were obsessed with food. Um, they were obsessed because they were deprived. I mean, they had grown up in Beijing and Shanghai, and my mom had left Shanghai at a young age and gone across the country, but the but she was from a family where food was interesting, especially to her mother. My my grandmother was always cooking, even though she was a vegetarian, a devout vegetarian, she would cook meat dishes for us and I could tell she was, you know, cooking them with interest in how they would how they would taste and what they would be like the situation my parents faced when they arrived in Wisconsin in the mid 60s was that they had zero asian food supplies <laughs> they would go they went to the supermarket they had to go to chicago to get soy sauce and dried mushrooms and you know other other supplies and any Any um, vegetables or perishables they bought in Chicago would, of course, be no good after a few weeks at the most. And so then they would have to lean on supermarket vegetables, supermarket sort of products in order to create food. And so the food they made was uh, always experimental, um, continually evolving with the times. and it usually involved a component that could be brought from Chicago and kept, dried or canned or in the fridge, plus components of supermarket food from basically, you know, the middle of nowhere at the time in terms of Asian cuisine in Appleton, where I grew up. So we grew up on sort of a kind of fascinating cuisine. My sister remembers during the Vietnam War, People in the Midwest became much more interested in the other side of the world, and supermarkets began to carry items like scallions, and my parents were able to make things like scallion pancakes, um, which my mother taught me how to make uh, with Crisco, by the way, instead of lard, which is the traditional shortening in a scallion pancake. Um, but they invented a lot of recipes. So we they were always talking about food because they were always trying to make things taste the way they, that my father remembered or, you know, I- improvise. So, yeah, food was a big part of our lives.
0: It is the central thing that joins their family, whether they like it or not. Not that they all have to work at the restaurant, but it's also kind of a point of like seating them in the community. Like they are the restaurant owners, and there are certain people in the community who might not go to their restaurant because it's owned by Chinese people. Uh, and there's there's sort of have this um rival restaurant that is not chinese um owned by the, by the restaurant. owned by the people that that bully them so it it stood for so much in this book
1: yes the thing about writing a novel is that if you choose a setting or a situation you have to use it in as many ways as possible so yeah the restaurant is really central to the book i remember when i was young my parents um when they began inviting friends over, um, Americans, as they called them, who'd never had Chinese food, how much they had to sort of be aware of who they were feeding. My mom kept a card in her recipe box that she showed me when I was little that said, foods Americans eat, foods Americans don't eat. So they would have people over, and my mother and father would think about what to feed them in advance. They would feed them, and then my mom would take notes on what they did and didn't like for next time. You know, they like big chunks of meat, as my mother said. (laughs) Meat off the bone was another thing. In a way, my parents had like a little food center going on, an Asian food uh, restaurant in our house. Um, No one was paying for it, but they were serving everybody and catering to everybody, and yet they were getting like a lot of um, sort of pioneering pleasure out of it, a kind of interest, you know, in seeing how they could share what they liked with the people that they lived around. All of that is in the book.
0: And then last question about, you know, what kind of some thoughts that the book leaves you with is where do emotions go after they're felt and expressed? And, and is there a place where spent passion collects? These are literal questions you asked at the end. I don't know if there's an answer, but I'm just wondering about you writing these lines.
1: I don't know if there's an answer either. they are questions that I asked myself, and so I put them into the characters. I think everyone can think about it. I mean, everybody's probably had this experience of feeling extremely passionate about something and then looking at it later from a distance. Where did that go? I mean, the most common instance of that that I've heard expressed is after people fall out of love with other people, they, they can't understand what happened. It's like being taken over by something. But where does that go? If it's over, did it not, did it not exist? And my, my answer has always been, of course it exists. I think it exists as we speak. I think everything that ever existed is still in existence, but I don't have any proof of that dreams I think are a proof of it um, you can have a dream you know years later when you're in your your normal life your current life you can have a dream that takes you back uh, to a feeling um, that you had in an entirely different life
0: it seems like it's all somehow related to time like
1: yes I, I mean I also think these are questions that people start asking when they're past their youth I I just think when people are in their youth, their brains are in a completely different state of development, which is why I think that the fiction written by young people is entirely different than the fiction written by older people.
0: In your acknowledgments, you thanked Charles Baxter for, I think it was like a lecture where he said something about having a character shout for a cup of coffee, which is in your book. And I just wanted to ask you about that.
1: It was just a kind of a fun thing to create a scene in which a character asks for a cup of coffee. Uh, Charlie gave a talk called Making a Scene, which is an essay in one of his uh, essay collections about fiction writing, in which he talks about the, quote, gentility of workshop and how people expect um, characters to behave themselves and not to humiliate themselves and not to sort of show their sort of souls, like the, the their um, And he talks about Dostoevsky in the way that Dostoevsky is very different. And um, I don't know, I just found that very useful and helpful when I was working on my homage to the Brothers Karamazov, the essay. So I wanted to thank him. And I also, I mean, I wrote the book in a period of life when I was so busy that it was very hard to write. So. I wrote most of it at residencies. Um, I went to so many residencies. Uh, I had, at the time, a demanding job with a lot of transitionings going on at, at work, transitions. And there at home, um, I had a daughter, and, you know, it was wonderful when she was young, but it did take up a certain amount of just air time in the house and had space. Um, so I needed to entertain myself. I needed to come up with reasons that I wanted to go to my desk. And so just taking on small tasks, like, let's see if I can do this thing that Charlie mentions in his essay. Uh, let's see if I can include this pun that, you know, my student, former student Bennett Sims suggested, (laughs) you know, let's see if I can make these characters read this crazy children's book that I read when I was little, The Five Chinese Brothers, which also has a trial in it and also has Chinese Brothers. Like, let's see if I can put that into the book. You know, it was all a lot of it was just um, to see what was possible.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer?
1: Sure. Okay. So I chose this passage from Philip Roth, who I mentioned earlier on. This is from actually his it's a it's a it's a work of nonfiction it's patrimony um and it's about his father his his real life father and it starts it's really about his experiences with his father as he goes through his final illness and and death but you know you learn a lot about the dad's personality and what he was like before he was ill and there's a, there's this great passage that I just really love that I will talk about. Um, so the dad marries a second wife, Lil, who he had just begged her to marry him. And finally she did. And then after she married him, he was impossible to her. I mean, the dad is just such a, such a strong character in patrimony. Um, and I'm gonna read this description of how the dad is talking to Philip Roth on the phone and complaining about Lil, just complaining about Lil endlessly, What now that he's gotten her to marry him, like nothing she does is okay. And Philip Roth is actually sick and tired of hearing his dad criticize this woman. And so he actually defends Lil He says, I didn't think it was possible for him to ferret out still more things that were wrong with her, but for Lil's imperfections, even with only one good eye, his vision was microscopic. Okay, here we go. She can't even buy a cantaloupe, he told me in disgust on the phone one morning. And because I had by then heard just about enough on the general subject of what Lil could not do, I answered, look, A cantaloupe is a hard thing to buy. Maybe the hardest thing there is to buy. When you stop to think about it, a cantaloupe isn't an apple, you know, where you can tell from the outside what's going on inside. I'd rather buy a car than a cantaloupe. I'd rather buy a house than a cantaloupe. If one time in 10, I come away from the store with a decent cantaloupe, I consider myself lucky. I smell it, sniff it, press both ends with my thumb. I smell another one, press down again with my thumb. Eight, nine, ten cantaloupes. I can go through like this before I finally settle on one. And I take it home and we cut it open for dinner and the thing is tasteless and hard as a rock. I'll tell you about making a mistake with a cantaloupe. We all do it. We weren't made to buy cantaloupe. Do me a favor, Herm, get off the woman's ass because it isn't just Lil's weakness buying a shitty cantaloupe, it's a human weakness. She's being persecuted executed by you for something that maybe 1% of the human population is able to do right. And even with half of them, it's probably guesswork.
0: Do you want to say anything more about that?
1: Well, what I love about it is the way it escalates. I mean, it's a rant. A rant is a particular literary form. A rant is a form that isn't usually taught in fiction workshop because people think you're supposed to show and not tell. And people think you're supposed to be really sparse with your dialogue or whatever. But I love dialogue, and that's something I discovered when I was writing this book. It's full of dialogue. It's got a ton of monologues in it. It's got rants in it. Um, I love it. That is what I want to say about that passage. Also, it's about food, which I really enjoy.
0: Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: I'm going to read this section. It's our introduction to the fine chow, which is the family restaurant. James comes home for winter break after his semester in college, and he comes to the restaurant and sees a really old set of notes that have been written and posted uh, on, on, on the wall, actually. Following a scattershot analysis, Winnie also compiled a list of things Americans liked. Large chunks of meat, wontons and noodle together in the same soup, Pea pods and green beans, carrots, broccoli, and baby corn, no other vegetables. Ribs or chicken wings, beef with broccoli, chicken with peanuts. Peanuts and everything. Chop suey. What is this, Leo wrote. I don't know, Winnie wrote. Anything with shrimp. The rest of them can't eat shrimp, she annotated. Be careful. Anything from the deep fryer. Anything with sweet and sour sauce. Anything with a thick brown sauce. And there is, of course, the list of things the Americans didn't like. Meat on the bone, except ribs or chicken wings, rice porridge, and fermented soybeans. As he transfers food into a bowl, a pounding noise comes up from below. It's the sound of his father, Leo, Big Chow, coming up the stairs, footsteps that reverberate and thump with the authority of a man larger than he actually is. To these footsteps is added deep and resonant grumbling, profanity, growing more audible until, when he reaches the top of the stairs, a full question detaches itself and sings into the kitchen in a ringing baritone. And I'm going to not read the line of dialogue because it contains profanity. But this passage, um, these two passages were written at vastly different points. Um, the section of Leo Big Chow coming up the stairs, footsteps that reverberate and thump with the authority of a man, for, of a man larger than he actually is, Um, this was one of the first things I wrote, um, in 2005. And then the list of foods I wrote in 2014, when I was just riffing on things that, um, that I wanted to include in the book. And then the, um, the James transferring food into a bowl and coming up the stairs when he's actually in the restaurant, that is from very late in the composition of the novel. Um, I had to move everything around, um, this particular scene. I had to move it to the very front of the book, uh, in maybe December of 2019, 20 or January of 2020. And so that was five months before I turned in the book. So like all bits of pieces put together are in that passage.
0: Where do you write? Well,
1: I'm, Sitting in the space right now where I've been doing a lot of my writing, it's um it's one of the small bedrooms of this older house that we live in that has like two main bedrooms and then some smaller ones. It has windows though, which I like, and we painted the walls like a very intense shade of medium green. That is the color of it's the color of the binding on the book that I really like. It's almost an arsenic green. Um, It's the New York Review of Books uh, copy of The Anatomy of Melancholy. See that color? That's the color. This book took so long to write that I wrote it in a number of places. I was all over the place when I wrote it, Um, but right now the place where I'm writing is pretty stable.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I mean it's more like what, what do I do to get writing and get away from my life? But I I have felt a little bit with the family child coming out, a kind of um, anxiety or pressure um, that I don't usually feel. It's that moment when a book stops being a private project and becomes public. And it's really hard for me. So what I read, so what I, yesterday I was in a bad mood about it and I, couldn't figure out what to do. Like I thought about eating a lot, which is one thing. But then that seemed like a bad idea. And then I thought about what it what was my other thought, it was some other kind of escape mechanism. But what I actually did was read Agatha Christie's um, novel, uh, Murder on the Orient Express, which I haven't read since I was a teenager. And I had a copy sitting around because I thought my daughter might like it. And I ended up just reading it. And I, I stayed up until about two in the morning and it was extremely therapeutic. And I'm, it really helped me get away from basically everything. It was great and fascinating and funny. Who do you show
0: your work to first to get feedback?
1: I have a friend I went to college with, Liz Rourke. Um, she likes to read. She's always looking for stuff to read. She's really smart. Um, she's a physician but and she's, she's trained as a writer, but she doesn't write very much as far as I know. So she's a really good reader for me um, because she gets a general sense of things and then she tells me. I think people get hung up when they write novels on passages they've written and they don't want to get rid of them and that's one of the main problems one of the biggest challenges of writing a novel, but Liz will say to me, this doesn't get going until page 150, and I'll know I have to cut off the first 150 pages. This is something that she literally told me. Um, So I show it to her. I show it to my mentor, Margot Livesey. I hate the word mentor, but really she has been an amazing mentor to me. (laughs) Um, And for this book, I showed it to a number of people. Um, I showed it to David Haynes. Um, novelist who long ago, I heard him give a lecture about, about comic novels and I found that interesting and I wanted to, um, show it to him and see what he thought. He thought it needed to get close, closer to the plot and he was correct. It's not a typical, uh, advice you hear. And I showed it, I showed this to so many people. I showed it to Deborah Spark, Jess Walter, Kevin Brockmeyer, Bennett Sims who was extremely helpful, my former student. I showed it to uh, James Han Matson, another former student. I showed it to Ada Zhang, another former student. Um, these are people I worked with a long time ago. Um, I showed it to, I hope I'm not forgetting too many people, but I really showed it to a lot of people because I really needed to be able to get a, a view of it. I think basically I worked on it alone until the summer of 2019, which was how many years after I started it, 13, 14 years after I really started it. And then I showed it to a ton of really helpful people and got a lot of really helpful feedback. And I've never done that. I've never shown a novel to so many people before.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: I'm not good at dealing with rejection. I think if I were better at dealing with it, I would get really emotional and talk about it and cry and, sort of rant and rave, but instead I usually just swallow it and get sort of avoidant. So if I'm rejected by something, I will avoid looking at that publication, which I don't think is really healthy. I think you have to work it through your system. You know, it's funny, publishing a book is a a great experience, but it can also be a, a, a very stressful experience because for every list or every distinction that any book receives, Like every other book from that season did not receive that distinction. And so I think every writer has to sort of accept that unless you are so successful, you know, that your book is a household word, I think you, everybody has to deal with it. Not easy.
0: What is your favorite word?
1: Yeah, I don't have a favorite word. I'm always nervous about this question. I know a lot of people do, but I don't. I hate to think that my feeling about words is so utilitarian that I don't have a favorite, but there you go.
0: Thank you so much for your time. I'm so appreciative and thank you for this conversation.
1: Oh, it's been so great. It's so great to talk to you. Thanks.
0: If you liked today's show with Lan Samantha Chang, author of the novel, The Family Chow, check out my interview with Celeste Ng on her novel, Everything I Never Told You. We talked about creating a main character rooted in desire, the pressures of social media on teenagers, and writing passionate arguments between two characters. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 350 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Sarah Manguso, Douglas Stewart, Keith O'Brien, Jacinda Townsend, Jeffrey Yang, and Ada Limon. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.